Our New Testament lesson today is from 1 Peter chapter 3. On this day, we begin a new series for Lent that is called At the Cross. And each week, we'll look at one of the readings from the epistle lesson for the day and hear um, the message of the cross as we travel through this Lenten journey together. Christ himself suffered on account of sins once for all, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. He did this in order to bring you into the presence of God. Christ was put to death as a human, but made alive by the Spirit. And it was by the Spirit that he went to preach to the spirits in prison. In the past, these spirits were disobedient, when God patiently waited during the time of Noah. Noah built an ark in which a few, that is eight, lives were rescued through water. Baptism is like that. It saves you now, not because it removes dirt from your body, but because it is a mark of a good conscience toward God. Your salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at God's right side. Now that he has gone into heaven, he rules over all angels, authorities, and powers. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The death of Jesus on the cross is the center of all Christian theology, the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann said. Moltmann was referring to the cross as the literal hinge of our Christian thinking. There's a time before the cross and a time after the cross. The world turned in this single event. The cross is our church's centerpiece and logo. It's difficult not to notice it when you sit in this room. We typically carry in the cross during the Lenten season. In some traditions, the cross always processes before anything else in worship. I wear a cross on my chest every week, a reminder to me that I first belong to Christ. We wore crosses made of ash on our foreheads just a few days ago, reminding us of our mortality and Christ's saving work. So yes, the cross is the center of all Christian thinking. But I would contend that we have grown accustomed to the cross. When we see crosses on churches or around people's necks, we don't always think about the death of Jesus. It's almost become Christian branding or a logo so much that we've forgotten the power of the cross. So we're going to spend these Sundays in Lent focusing upon the cross. The New Testament epistle reading each week is going to guide us to look from a different vantage point at the cross so that we can focus on what God did and does for us at the cross. This week our scripture begins, Christ himself suffered on account of sins, once for all the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. We are accustomed to this viewpoint of the cross and death of Jesus. In theological terms, what I'm talking about today is called substitutionary atonement. By substitution, we mean that Christ died in your place or on humanity's behalf. Many of us, if asked what the death of Jesus on the cross means, would likely say something that resembles him taking our place. 
and rightfully so. The viewpoint is in Scripture, and we sing about it all of the time. Died he for me who caused his pain, the Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be, sings. When God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin, Isaac Watts sings, And alas, and did my Savior bleed. The contemporary hymn from Phil Wickham says the same. This is amazing grace, this is unfailing love, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. Every time we gather for communion, I say these words on the night in which Jesus gave himself for us. So we see that this theme of substitution is a popular way for us to understand what happened on the cross. I want to make it clear, none of these ways that we are going to look at the cross is the only way to understand it, and neither are any of them the wrong way. Substitution is a helpful image to help us see God's great love for us. And we are going to look at multiple images throughout these weeks to help broaden how we see the depth of God's love for us displayed at the cross. These words about Jesus' suffering stuck out to me as I read the scripture this week. The words of 1 Peter are written to a group of Gentile Christians in the area that was known as Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Given the tone of 1 Peter, these Christians were being persecuted for their beliefs in a way that seems harsher than Christians living elsewhere. So from one vantage point, 1 Peter was using the suffering of Jesus as an example for the Christians in Asia Minor who were suffering. In the same way that we Americans are not wild about reminders of our mortality on Ash Wednesday, we also do not like to focus on suffering. Seanathea Monroe Mueller writes this, Americans have an especially strong aversion to suffering, as if our constitutional rights to the pursuit of happiness also guaranteed a life free from suffering. End quote. So in one sense, 1 Peter's focus of Jesus' suffering as a model for us is good. Sometimes when we do good and try to follow the way of Jesus, it leads to suffering. These words have comforted martyrs and saints for a long time. But we are not supposed to glorify suffering as if the more that we suffer, then the more faithful we are. Moreover, God does not require suffering from us. This is when substitution can be misused. People can make God out to seem like a bloodthirsty deity who demands payment for sin and sends his own son to suffer for it. Jesus did suffer, but it was at his own volition. It was a suffering experienced in order to bring us to God. Our scripture says that Jesus suffered once for all. This means that Jesus suffered and died so that we don't have to. We don't have to be slaves to sin and be stuck in patterns of abuse and suffering. For the suffering of Jesus brings us into the presence of God. This is the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross. It changes the relationship that we have with God. The cross, important as it is, is not the only aspect of our salvation, though, that we see in this short reading today. I want you to just hear some of these words from 1 Peter again, and I invite you to listen for ideas that we say every week in the Apostles' Creed. Christ himself suffered on account of sins once for all, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. 
He did this in order to bring you into the presence of God. Christ was put to death as a human, but made alive by the Spirit. Your salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at God's right side. Now that he has gone into heaven, he rules over all angels, authorities, and powers. Each week we say we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Then we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What First Peter and what the creed we recite each week are saying is this. It is the entirety of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension that saves us. There is, no, there is more to it than just Jesus' suffering on the cross. For if all Jesus had done was taken our place on the cross, but not risen from the dead, he would not be victorious over death. And if Jesus had risen, but not ascended, he would not be Lord of all. So while the cross is the center of Christian thinking, it is not the only part of Christian thinking. To properly understand Jesus and his work, we need the entirety of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Somehow, First Peter argues we are able to gain access to this salvation in this life. And the key to this understanding, according to Scripture, is baptism. Scholar David Bartlett writes, The saving act of Christ's suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension is laid hold of by believers in their baptism. His saving act and their baptism together bring the faithful to God. End quote. This is what First Peter means when he writes, Baptism is like that. It saves you now. Taken alone, those two short sentences, baptism is like that, it saves you now, would seem to imply that all a person has to do to receive salvation is to be baptized. But I don't think that's the point here in First Peter. For somehow in our baptism, we are baptized into Christ. Listen to the whole of verses 21 and 22. Baptism is like that. It saves you now. Not because it removes dirt from your body, but because it is the mark of a good conscience toward God. Your salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at God's right side. Now that he has gone into heaven, he rules over all angels, authorities, and powers. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way, First Peter asserts that the true saving power of baptism comes not from H2O, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to the right hand of God. In other words, the power of our baptism is that it places us into the saving life of Christ. It somehow brings us into Christ's presence. Is this done by the water poured on you or that you are immersed into? I don't think so. The saving work of baptism is accomplished by Jesus, and somehow in baptism, we understand ourselves as recipients of this salvation. The scripture uses Noah as an example, and it's an interesting one. Noah and his family were saved from the floodwaters, and we are saved through water. God transforms the dangerous floodwaters for us into waters of life. Through the death of Jesus on our behalf, our sinful selves are buried with Christ. And through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we are raised to walk in newness of life.
So what do we do with this news that Jesus came to suffer and die for us in order to bring us to God? I know at times that it has caused me great guilt. For many Christians, they have attempted to somehow replicate then the sacrifice of Christ as if by suffering they somehow pay their debt owed to God. I don't think this is how it works. As if our misery and our masochism somehow pay a debt back to God. We don't have a debt to God. This is what grace is all about. It is freely given. Jürgen Moltmann, who I quoted at the beginning, has also written this. God not only participates in our suffering, but also makes our suffering into his own and takes death into his life. Jesus suffers vicariously for us, on our behalf, once for all. A clearer picture of vicarious suffering has come into view for me through my children. For I have been with both of my children when they broke bones at three years old. Adelaide and I were on a double slide when her femur snapped. And last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was with the kids on a bike ride when Madeline fell head over heels on her balance bike down a hill and broke her collarbone. My children suffered. They hurt. But the pain for me was so intense. I felt it deeply, and if I could have taken it all away from them, I would have. And as I've experienced that love as a parent, I realize all that my parents did for me. The ways they loved me and lost sleep when I was sick and reoriented their lives so that I would thrive. And I could have one of two responses to that kind of love. One is guilt. And if I feel guilt, it would be this eternal sense of debt that I owe to my parents. A sense that I could never pay it back because I can't. But another response, and indeed a healthier one, is one of gratitude. I'm grateful for all that my parents did for me. And I want to live and respond out of that place of gratitude. God did not save us so that we would forever be indebted to God. God saved us so that we could be in eternal relationship with God, creature with the Creator. So let us show our gratitude by how we live our lives every single day. I pray that our worship and our lives would be wellsprings of gratitude because we are free from the burden of sin and the curse of death. When you see the cross, I pray that it would bring you to your knees in thankfulness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.